If you do not have your Bibles open, I would invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to look at these few verses together this morning. There's an interesting experience that parents have of watching their children grow. It almost happens before our eyes. Maybe one day to the next, it's almost as if we can measure growth within our children, right? Just suddenly, they need new pants and new shoes, and they outgrow their crib and then their toddler bed, and on and on and on they grow. But there may be no greater indicator of their growth than when you go to pick them up. Right? One day, it seems easy. You can pick them up, you can throw them all around. But then the next it requires a little more effort. Maybe you even have to grunt to hoist them into your arms. They're a little more dense than you expected. Well, in our text this morning, Jesus is questioned concerning his understanding of the law. And he's asked, which is the great commandment? And the answer that Jesus gives is shockingly dense. See, we might hear this language of love and we might think it's a cloud to be ridden on. But Jesus will make clear that this is a weight to be carried and those who attempt to carry the weight ultimately would be crushed by it. So the main idea of the text and therefore the main idea of our time is this. Fulfill the law of Christ. Fulfill the law of Christ. Love God and neighbor. Fulfill the law of Christ. Love God and neighbor. Let's read our text again. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now our passage this morning stands in a bit of contrast from the rest of Matthew. There's much of Matthew that is obscured by odd parables, by questions and answers and back and forth. And so sometimes, at least the immediate audience of Jesus, it was hard for them to pick up what he was laying down, as it were. But here we have a question and a straightforward answer. And if you'll remember from last week, Josh showed us that the setting has changed. The religious elite, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, are changing their tactics to some extent. Now they're asking him questions. They're trying to get chummy with him in hopes of tripping him up. And now the Pharisees are up to bat. The Sadducees failed last week, and everybody in their pride, when they see someone else fail, they think, oh, well, I've got this. So the Pharisees step up. And they send in their guy. And who else would they send in to ask a challenging question but a lawyer? Which is the great commandment? And this lawyer knows his stuff. He asks the question in such a way that it's likely that regardless how Jesus answers, he's not going to look good. If Jesus says that the whole law is equal and should be upheld then Jesus would be contradicting some things that he has already said. If you would look back in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't have time to go there today, but if you look back there, there's many things in the Sermon on the Mount that contradict the Mosaic law. Jesus himself is being accused of breaking the Sabbath. So if Jesus says to uphold all of the law of Moses, well then he would be himself a transgressor. 
But on the other hand, if Jesus picks a law to highlight, he could be accused of being a lawless man, of pitting part of the law against some other part of the law. Yet, even with their scheme being obvious to Jesus, Jesus gives them a direct answer. Without qualification, Jesus gives this lawyer the whole truth and nothing but the truth. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now, if your ears are open and you're reminded about what the law is, particularly from the Ten Commandments, this is not the first law. But what point is Jesus making here? If you will, turn in your Bibles back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Jesus is quoting. Deuteronomy, a book all about the law. And we read this in chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. See, this portion of the law is called the Shema. It's that first word, hear, hear, O Israel. And this was the basis for the life of Israel. Israel was a nation founded on a theological reality, something true about God, that the Lord is one. And I think what Moses is saying here is not just that the Lord is one, but that the Lord is alone. Not as though the Lord was lonely, but that he's completely set apart. He's by himself. Nothing and no one is comparable to him. This was the God who had rescued them out of slavery to Egypt. This was the God who had shown himself powerful and faithful, just and merciful, strong and gentle. This was Yahweh who had made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what is the point? Since they were the people of this one God, they were to serve Yahweh with exclusive devotion. And so therefore, the point to love God is to fulfill the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. This is what Moses is communicating. God had already given them the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. But what is the point of the law? To secure their love. The response to him, response to the saving work of God, is to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, it has always been this way. If we do a quick survey of the book of Deuteronomy, we would find that this book has laced throughout it not strictly law, or not strictly law but love. See, we get bogged down in the reading of Deuteronomy in books like Leviticus, which Jesus will quote in a second, and we miss love because we miss the forest for the trees. 
How many of us in our regular Bible reading, when we come to Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we kind of groan? Because we're stuck with our eyes on the law and we miss love. I mean, just look at some of the other passages. If you're still in Deuteronomy, go to chapter 10. Look in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart. Just a little further down, chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Go to chapter 13, verse 3. Halfway in chapter, or verse 3, it says, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Now go to chapter 30, all the way towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy. Verse 19. The last sentence of verse 19. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Well, what is life? Verse 20. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. See, here's the point. The law has always been about love. Love expressed in obedience to the commands of God. In other words, Deuteronomy tells us to love is to obey. To obey is to love. And part of the reason that this is so difficult for us is because of our twisted and distorted view of love. We think of love primarily as a sense of affection, as an emotive expression, an infatuation. And while there is certainly emotion involved in true love, this isn't the sense of love. I think this is part of our assumption because we take our cues from Hollywood and Hallmark. So in the words of Hathaway, what is love? It is a commitment. It is a conscious choice. Love is the commitment to pursue the good of another at the expense of self. In relation to God, love is obedience. To believe that God and his ways are better. To forsake all selfish ambition and to adopt a God-centered life. Wholehearted, full being, every fiber of yourself, obedience. Not simply with your actions, but with your attitude, with your affections, with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is the difference between obedience and adherence. Obedience has God as its focus. Adherence is for the sake of self. And this was Israel's problem. They thought that if they just kept the law externally, that it would be enough. That if they adhered to the law, they would gain God's approval. But God did not want their adherence. He wanted their hearts and obedience. 
And this is where we find the crushing weight of Jesus' command. See, the law of God, the law of love is impossible for man to fulfill because the love of man is not for God. All of us are utterly unable to love God with a wholehearted, undivided, completely devoted love. And this is what God requires of us. Our hearts are so infected by sin and controlled by self that we, in our natural state, want nothing to do with God. But this is not all. Go back to our passage in Matthew. If that wasn't enough, if that's not enough weight on your shoulders, well, Jesus adds some more. Verse 39, or verse 38, this, love, is the great and first commandment. Verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He tells us that this command is like the first. In other words, they're connected. Never to be separated. True love and devotion to God will necessarily express itself in love of neighbor. And here he quotes, again, The law, Leviticus 19.18, another book that we have such a hard time reading through because we miss the point. For Leviticus is all about the Levitical priesthood, it's all about cleanliness laws, it's all about the prescription of the sacrificial system. Yet what does Jesus say the point of Leviticus is? It is love. When our hearts are oriented vertically in love of God, then there will be a horizontal overflow of that love. In other words, when we concern ourselves with love for God, then our focus will become love for neighbor. And we even see this in how the the Ten Commandments themselves, right? The summary of the law is organized in the same way. The first four commands are about God. We are to, or the Israel was called to, worship God alone. To have no carven images that would be a temptation toward idolatry. To honor the Lord's name and to keep the Sabbath holy. Vertically oriented commands. And then we shift in article number five, right? Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness and do not covet. Horizontal love or vertical love and then horizontal love. And then in our passage, Jesus says, this is the great commandment, the first and the second. But he doesn't stop there. Look in verse 40. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Talk about surprisingly dense. Jesus says that the whole of the old covenant, that's what he means by law and prophets. This is the old covenant. The whole of the old covenant rests on, hangs from love of God and love of neighbor. In our New Testament, writers follow this example, right? So many of them will say even specifically, and the whole law is summed up in this one word, love your neighbor as yourself. See, the point of the law was always about love. And this was the point, right? Jesus even references that. You've got law and you've got prophets. And think about the relationship between these two. You have the law, which are the calls and commands of God. Well, what happens when Israel was unfaithful? 
Well, God would send them the prophets. And what was the message of the prophets? Return to your love. Repent. Come back. The prophets were to announce judgment for the sake of returning to love. And I think this is exactly why Matthew includes this account in this section. Because this is exactly what the Pharisees and Israel lacked. They lacked love. God was on their lips, but he was absent from their hearts. So, taken out of its context, this passage comes across, right, as a, as a passage of commendation, right? We are commended to love. But I think Jesus actually is trying to make a condemnation. He is condemning his audience for their lack of love. And it's when Jesus says this last phrase that all of the law and prophets rest on love, love of God and love of neighbor, that we see how foolish and futile the sacrificial or the, the Pharisaical system was. Look at chapter 23 real quick, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' feet, meaning they come to you as though they are an extension of the law of Moses. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. And here's the kicker, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear. And lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. See, the Pharisees were all about adherence, but not obedience, issuing from the heart. Instead of the heart, they put all of the weight of the old covenant on the people's backs. They believed and taught that you could keep the law externally that you could adhere to every iota and dot of the law, that they could be law keepers for their whole lives. But when we do this, when the Pharisees did this, when Israel did this, they bore the burden of the old covenant system on their backs. And Jesus said, all it did was heap burdens hard to bear. See, the point that Jesus is making here is that external adherence to the law is not enough. It must issue from love. And therefore, lovelessness is lawlessness. To lack love is to transgress the law. To break the law at any point is to break all of it. The law was a unit. And so therefore, to fulfill the old covenant required more than external righteousness, but a heart-level devotion. See, if you lack love in any attitude, affection, or action, if any part of your motivation or movement is carried out apart from love, If there was ever a moment or is a moment in which your heart is not wholly devoted to the praise and worship of God, if there is an ounce of pride within you, if there is a sense of partiality in which you would prefer someone over another, if at any point you have sought your own need at the expense of self, then the law bears witness against you and is on your back. The law and prophets testify that you are a transgressor and deserve of the weight of the law to be dropped on your head. 
See, Jesus, in telling the Pharisees that the greatest commandment is love of God and love of neighbor, is not good news. If this is the greatest command, this is also our greatest terror. But there is good news. For the greatest command is fulfilled by the greatest love. In the person of Jesus, we find exactly that. The greatest love of wholehearted submission and delight in God. The greatest love expressed in a commitment towards the good of others at the total expense of self. In the life of Jesus, he actively fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. And this being wholehearted devotion to God his Father and an utter commitment to seek the welfare of those around him. You see, Jesus in his life is the law keeper. Not just an external act, but an internal heart-motivated love. See, in the person of Jesus, we have what Israel was meant to be, a true son of God living out in love for his father. Jesus, humble and meek, through strength and submission, not only had the approval of God, but earned it through his heart-centered obedience. And then, his love throughout his ministry, but then most supremely was put on display at the cross Supremely in his death, Jesus shows us love. And in doing so, fulfills the law. For the law required that anyone who would try to keep it must carry all of it. It's as though the mountain of Sinai, where the law was given, was hung over the head of a loveless and lawless people. Waiting to be dropped in just judgment on them. But in love, Jesus took that weight on himself. He bore it on his shoulders and he was crushed by that mountain. Not because he was a lawbreaker, but because he was the love giver. At the death of Jesus, the very ground, the foundation of the earth shook as the maker of the law was judged in the stead of lawbreakers like you and me. And all of this for the sake of love. In so doing, you know what Jesus does? He defines love itself. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a blood sacrifice payment for our sins. And in this work of love, Jesus fulfills and establishes a new law. Ephesians 2.15 tells us that Jesus abolished the law expressed in ordinances, meaning it is, not, it is no longer required to keep a strict adherence to the law of Moses. This is not the pathway to righteousness. If it had, had ever been, it wouldn't have accounted for anything. But in his work, Jesus inaugurates a new law, the law of Christ, the law of love. And Paul picks this up. You don't have to turn here. But Paul picks this up in Galatians. This is the point of Galatians. You cannot gain righteousness by circumcision, by the law. It must come by faith in Christ. And where does Paul go to make his case? He goes to Deuteronomy. 
Galatians 3.10, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Both of these four writtens, Paul is pulling directly from Deuteronomy. But he goes on, Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Law keeping will not do it. But only faith working through what? Love. And then he goes on, Galatians 5.13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is our new covenant reality. We who have experienced the love of God can then turn, because of our heart change, in love towards God. And so, the point of the passage, and the point I bring to you, fulfill the law of Christ. And this begins with love of God. If you have experienced this love, then you have these two commands, love God and neighbor. And love of God begins with repentance. This is the first sign of a heart that has been captured by God. It stems from a heart that recognizes it has been loved by God. See, in our sin, we must realize that we have not loved God, that we have not honored God, that we have not acknowledged God, we have not been thankful to God. And so what does repentance do? It then looks to forsake all sin for the sake of having God. This is what love looks like. Repentance is the reorientation of loves. To run from former desires of the heart and turn to God as our new great desire. See, at the heart of repentance is a new heart of love. Where else do we get this idea but Deuteronomy itself? Deuteronomy 30 verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that what? What's the point of the work of the Spirit to circumcise your heart? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and that you might live. So love of God begins with repentance. But then love of God is expressed in obedience. A change of heart leads to a changed life. Out of the overflow of the heart of a love for God issues a commitment to praise and honor God in all of life. It seeks to take the commands of God announced in the scriptures and make those the marching orders of life. John again, 2 John uh, verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you would walk in it. See, to obey is to love. To love is to obey. Now, you may be sitting here this morning with a longing for this. You want to love God. And yet you have little feeling for the things of God. 
Your heart sits unmoved in your chest whenever you hear the songs that we sing or the the words in the scriptures that we read. In other words, you know you ought to love God, but you don't feel like you love God. You come on Sundays and you see people, you talk to people who seem to be warm to the things of God, all the while you feel cold. What do you do? Well, the first is you need to be reminded that love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. It is a choice. But then, feelings will always follow faith. So then fan the affections into flame by faith. If you find yourself merely walking through a checklist when external obedience and you want to long for more, don't suppress that longing. Understand that even the desire for a greater affection towards God, a greater delight in God, is the work of the Spirit in your heart. And so start by asking God to stir your affections. Ask God to increase your love for Him and give you the gift of delight. Don't you think that's a prayer God would want to answer? But not only ask God to do this within you, then to pursue the things that would stir the affections. Pursue the means of grace that God has given you so that your heart would not be cold. Meditate on the gospel. If you are in Christ, then marvel at the love of God poured out for you. Remember, we will never love if we do not understand love of God. So meditate on the love of God exhibited towards you. Cultivate a heart that is intimately aware of the way that Jesus has demonstrated love for you. Psalm 111.2, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. There is a correlation between the amount of time that we spend thinking and meditating on the things of God and the amount of time that we will enjoy and delight in those things. See, God has created our hearts to be responsive to love. So set your mind on the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Another practical way that you can stir your affections towards God is sing rich songs. Let good and rich songs stir your affections for the Lord. Take the playlist that we have here at Southside and put this on repeat in your home. And then don't just commit to listen to them in the background. Pull up the lyrics. Sing with the recordings. Sing loud whenever we gather. It is by singing songs that our hearts will be stirred in delight of God. And so commit. Commit your life to love God. And then begin to pursue the things that would stir your affections for God. But we saw, Jesus said, there's the great and first commandment, but there's a second one. Not only are we love love God, obey Him, honor Him, but we are to love others. And this one is challenging for us as well because we often misdefine love. See, our world, and therefore ourselves, has a habit of calling hate Love and love hate. See, if love is the commitment for the good of another at the expense of self, then hate is the commitment to the elevation of self at the expense of others. See, hatred is opposed to love. And hatred does three things. It ignores others, it uses others, and it lets others go. 
Now you may say, well, I don't, I don't, do the, I don't ignore others, I don't use others, I don't let others go. We wouldn't dare use that language, right? We're more sanctified than that. I don't ignore people. I just need to work on me for a while. I just need to prioritize my self-care. I don't use people. I just happen to spend all my time with people who make me feel good. I just happen to spend all my time with people who have the opportunities that I myself want. I don't let others go. I just don't want to cause conflict. What's it hurting anyone anyway? What's the harm? See, this, friends, our world would call love, but the Bible would call hate. Love, on the other hand, does three things. It considers others, it serves others, and it goes after others. It considers others, it serves others, and it goes after others. See, love considers others. It makes an intentional effort to think of people. Our default assumption in the morning is to think of self. So therefore, by the work of the Spirit, we must be intentional to think of other people. Hatred can't see beyond our nose, but love has its eyes up and out. And one of the ways that we do this is we plan with intentionality ways in which we can serve others. Of course, we can be spontaneously loving. The Lord demonstrated this quite clearly. But you are going to find that your love is much more clear when it is intentional and when it is planned. Do you wake up in the morning with a mind to serve those who you will encounter that day? Maybe begin your morning by considering who will I encounter? My spouse, my kids, my friends, my coworkers. How will I encounter them? When will I encounter them? Begin to strategize ways in which you can consider others. Think of others beyond yourself. Love commits to serve them. So make a plan. Wake up in the morning. How can I serve those who I'm around? Make an intentional effort to consider others. In considering others, we also commit to pray for one another. This is why we give you the prayer directory. And maybe, maybe the reason that you haven't picked up a prayer directory, maybe the reason that you're not praying through it regularly is because of lovelessness. Are you committed to praying for others within this body? Use this tool as a reminder. Our love grows often cold. Use the prayer directory to stir your love. Look at their faces. Pray for them. And if you have prayed for someone, follow up with them. Call them, text them, tell them, I prayed for you. How can I pray more? And if you encounter someone in this congregation and you say, I will pray for you, I will pray about that. Make sure you pray, for one, but then follow up with them. Ask them, has the Lord answered my prayer? Has the Lord answered the prayer that we're praying together? Has he done what we asked or has he done something more glorious? Follow up with that person. Go back to them and see if the Lord has done that work. But once love considers others, it then begins to serve others. And this is always, or not always tangible, but it is often simple. We think of ways that we can serve one another, and we talk about serving the church as being involved in the programmatic ministries of the church. We have people who are serving us right now and keeping childcare. They are expressing love to us. But just serving in the programs of the church is a limited view of love. It is much wider and expansive than that. Maybe this is just making time for other people. 
Maybe you should find some of the older saints with our church, within our church and just committing to go and sitting, them with an hour, sitting with them for an hour and just listening to them. Ask them about what the Lord is doing in their lives. Ask them about what the Lord has done in their lives. Make time for other people. Simply sit with the saints and enjoy fellowship with one another. If you come and you gather with other Christians and you ask them how, you, how they're doing, ask them genuinely. How are you doing? And expect to be inconvenienced as they tell you how you're doing or how they're doing. And if someone asks you, how are you doing? Answer truthfully. Make the awkward conversation and then move on. Right? This is awkward because we're not used to this. But if we begin to develop this kind of culture of loving each other in this way, actually knowing what's going on in our lives, I think the awkwardness will fade. And the glory of God will be revealed. So listen. Older men, maybe your job in serving others, expressing love for others, is grabbing younger men to help you with a project. We've all got projects going on. Grab someone younger than you. Grab another member of the church and say, come and help me. You may not need help. You may be an expert. It may actually be more difficult for you to bring someone along. But do it anyway. For the sake of love. Older women, the same thing. Grab younger women within the congregation and bring them. Bring them to help you in the kitchen. Bring them to help you at home. Bring them to help you with other projects that you are working on. Again, it might take more time. It might be more messy. But do it for the sake of love. Because love is willing to take on inconvenience for the sake of serving others. Love doesn't just consider others. Love doesn't just serve others. Love goes after others. We don't let others go the way of their sin. This means our unbelieving family and friends. Love this week will probably look like you sharing the gospel with your unbelieving family and friends. Be bold this week for the sake of love. Love also might be calling back wayward sheep. Love does not let others go for the sake of destruction. It goes after them. It compels us to share the gospel. It compels us to correct and rebuke and to call back. Love drives out the fear of man so that we might be bold and call those who profess to be, or profess to be in Christ to remain in Christ. Love calls those who are disconnected from the body to come back. Love calls those who are running from God to run to God. Love goes after others. And here we see what it means to fulfill the law. Now this does not become a new system in which we climb a ladder to the Lord. It is not as though as God has changed an old ladder for a new one and just painted love on the side. No, this is something where Christ loves us, so then we respond in love. Again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, 
that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. See, the difference between the Pharisaical system and the law of Christ is that the Pharisaical system was a burden. A burden to be kept for the, to aim to please God. But all it did was become that. A burden that could not be borne but by Christ. And then we see the law of Christ. It is not a burden. It is a joy. So much so that James will call it the law of liberty. This is freedom. This is what it means to be the people of God. To fulfill the law of Christ. To love God and love neighbor because he has first loved us.